Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. It's good to get to open up John 11 with you. You know, I, I am willing to bet that I'm not the only person present who's had a, a space of time in life where if I was to look at the calendar, it would be a pretty short amount of time. But in terms of the way that I experienced that time of my life, it felt like forever. I think each and every one of us has different seasons like that along the way. And I also wouldn't be surprised that if I'm not the only person, that the past six months of 2020 have felt the same way. Um, can you believe that we've only been through six months of this year so far? That is just, it, I still can't grasp that. The short amount of time, calendar-wise, that has felt like eons on our souls. You know, over the past few weeks, I've probably, like you, read a lot of different people's words and thoughts about things that have been going on in these six months, and I wish I knew the specific name that I could reference and give credit to, but I've seen this in a couple places where people have looked at the events of the past six months and have said that, in essence, uh, we've seen some of the significant pain and trauma of the prior century boiled down and condensed into six months. So if you think about the coronavirus pandemic, started early on in the year here, uh, it's been compared to the Spanish flu of 1918, and I'm no doctor, and so I don't know the validity of that comparison. That's not the point. The point is that trauma has affected the psyche of our culture, the whole world. But then here in America, after the lockdown from the coronavirus, the economic downturn that's been compared to the Great Depression of the 1930s, and then right in the midst of and on the heels of that, the protests and the riots following the killings of black Americans bring right up to our consciousness the memories from the protests and the riots in the 1960s. And there's probably more parallels that we can make that are more insightful than the ones that I just shared with you. The point is this. It's almost like the pain and trauma of a whole century has been just condensed into six short months that have felt like forever. And I know that as I reference all of those current events, I know that in a group of this size, our hearts and our minds are running a billion different directions. The reason I know that is because I have social media too. <laughs> We've all seen it. We've all been running in different directions, having different thoughts and feelings. You can rest assured I'm not here to give you my authoritative, all-seeing interpretation of these events because I don't have one. I have a humble, limited, confused, and heartbroken perspective. The reason I bring those up is because our hearts and our minds run in a billion different directions. As followers of Jesus, as children of God, we have first and foremost one direction to run in the midst of dark times like this, and that's to the feet of the word of life. It's to the feet of the one who has entered into the darkness and has not been overcome by it, who's overturned death to give life. 
It's to his feet that we must run so that we might be encouraged in our faith and so that we might grow in active obedience to him in the days that he gives us. Believe that's what John 11, the story of the raising of Lazarus, has for us today. In the midst of the chaos and the controversy of this world that is dead in sin, our first place to run is to the feet of the word of life, to have our trust refueled and to be more completely committed in obedience. So if you would open up in your your Bible to John chapter 11. The text has been read, but we will be referencing details as we walk through John 11. I want us to see how in the midst of dark times, the word of life is worthy of our trust and obedience. As we read, I'm going to unpack some, some key elements through the text that teach us what it looks like to trust and to obey this good king who is life embodied in dark times. The first point that we're going to look at in John chapter 11 is this. There are times when Jesus waits. Why does he do that? For the glory of God and for the love of his people. There are times of suffering. There are times of despair. There are times when God's people cry out and plead with him, help. And yet Jesus waits. And we ask, Why? John chapter 11 gives us at least two clear reasons for the glory of God and for the love of his people. Jesus waited to go to Bethany for God's glory and for his love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and their friends. Let's take a look at verse 3. The text says, So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. We might read this and see this as just a heads up. Hey, keeping you posted. Uh, Our brother is is really sick. Just want you to know. When we think of the context, the specific experience of these women, Jesus is a mighty healer, a worker of great miracles, and he is their friend. They have broken bread with him over the table. They know that he loves their brother. And so even the simple hey, heads up, is really a plea for help. Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. Help. And yet, you see in verse 6 that Jesus waits for two whole days, consciously and intentionally. Look at verse 6. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Why? He heard the plea of his friends. Polite as it was, it was still a plea. Help. The one whom you love is is ill. And yet he waited. The text gives us at least two reasons. Take a look at verse 4. This is Jesus' response upon hearing the message about Lazarus. He said, it says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, or it's not for the goal of death, but it is for the purpose of the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Why does Jesus wait? He waits for the glory of God. 
It's the glory of God that will be put on display when he raises his friend, his beloved friend, from the dead. The same powerful word that God spoke way back at the first beginning and brought everything out of a dark nothingness is the same powerful word Jesus speaks to call his friend out of the darkness of the dead tomb. This is the glory of God. And as the Son of God is glorified, the Father is glorified. Why did Jesus wait? For the glory of God. For his life-giving, good and majestic power to be put on display. For the encouragement of the people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Take a look at verse 5. What is the second reason Jesus waited? Take a look at how this flows. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Anytime that we're told by the narrator something like that, it's always important. Frankly, any word in Scripture is important. Even the genealogies, I know you don't believe it, but it is. Every word in Scripture is intentional. If we're told that Jesus loves somebody, it's for a reason. Take a look at verse 6. How that follows. Jesus loved them, so. Or even more explicitly, therefore, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, if it didn't make sense before, our minds might be even more boggled now. How, how do you reconcile that? I could put it even more plainly by just paraphrasing the text. Because Jesus loved these three, he waited two days. How in the world does that compute? As the king with perfect knowledge, the word of life, Jesus, is able to see a greater good for his friends than a quick fix. As the king with perfect knowledge, he is able to see a greater good than a quick healing. Why did Jesus wait? Because he loved them. He was for their good. Even though in the moment of their desperation, in the dark night of their soul, in their pain and confusion, even though they were crying out and pleading, help. And they couldn't see what the greater good was, but the king with perfect knowledge could. And out of love for them, he waited. So what does this speak to us in the midst of the chaos unfolding in our culture, but then also the personal struggles and difficulties and pains that we walk through. This is a reminder. Don't look to your circumstances to define God's love for you. Each and every one of us will have the knee-jerk temptation and reaction to look at the things going on before our eyes and say, because of this, how could you be good? Because of this, how could you be loving? Because of this, you don't hear prayers. Where are you? Don't look to your circumstances to define God's character. Look to God's character to define your circumstances. In this text, we've seen that God is always for his glory. Always for his glory. That Jesus loves his people. Always, unfailingly. These are truths that we cling to whenever it doesn't make sense why he's waiting. 
Let his pursuit of his glory, which is always bound up with his love for his people, be what defines your circumstances. This is where we stand firm when we're in the midst of the fog, the confusion, and the pain. God is after his glory. He loves his people. Let's let those realities define our circumstances. But as we move to the text, the next point, in our suffering, we find that our greatest need is met and the word of life embodied. Our greatest need is met in the word of life embodied. Let's take a look at verses 21 through 27. I want you to see this with me. The text says this, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, or the anointed king, the son of God who is coming into the world. When Jesus promises Martha that Lazarus will rise again, he's saying something true, but he's saying it in a bit of a vague way. Because notice, he didn't say when that would happen. He just says he will rise again. In Martha, being a good Bible-believing Jew has this steadfast, concrete hope rooted in the Hebrew Bible that in the end, God will set all wrongs rights. He will raise the dead, and he will abundantly bless his people with his overflowing goodness in his kingdom, and he will judge and deal with evil. She knows that there's a resurrection coming on the last day. So when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, without any indication of timeline, her mind immediately jumps to, yeah, I know that he'll rise on the last day. And that is a natural thing because think about our experiences whenever we go through difficult circumstances. We've received this. I'm sure we've all done this. When there is suffering in the life of a believer, we reach out, we pat on the back, and we try to console with theological truths. That's not a bad thing, right? I think that's what Mary thinks Jesus is doing. Yes, I remember our hope. But notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't correct her and say, no, 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 Martha, you've, you've misunderstood. I'm not talking about that end time hope. I'm talking about today. I'm giving you what you asked for today. Today, I'm giving you the longing of your heart. I'm going to remove your grief. I'm going to restore your brother. I'm giving you that today. He doesn't say that. Instead, he looks into her eyes and says, I I am the resurrection and the life. In Martha's time of suffering, the way that Jesus' love for Martha was expressed was showing her that he meets her greatest need. As much as she might feel like what she needs in that moment is just to have her brother back, 
as much as she might feel in that moment that she just needs to be done with this grief because it is overwhelming after four days sitting outside his tomb. As much as she feels those things, Jesus in mercy draws her gaze to him. Why? Because he alone will never be taken away. He alone will never fail her. He alone gives life that will never end. She needs him. He is her greatest need. It's in the midst of her suffering that Jesus points to himself as meeting Martha's greatest need. And Martha, God bless her, verse 27 says, yes, I believe this, and I gotta believe that she doesn't fully understand what's about to happen. But in the midst of the confusion, she says, I believe who you are. I know who you are. What does this have to say to us in the midst of our dark times and our suffering and struggles? Look to Christ as your greatest good. As much as you might feel like the healing of your marriage is the most important thing, the thing that you need. As much as you might feel like healing or financial provision or peace and stability in our nation might be the most important thing, it's not. Those are all good and godly things, but when we fixate on any of those good goals as an ultimate goal, we're running in a different direction than towards Christ. He is our greatest good. See, suffering in in difficulty is like a volume knob. Often what suffering does is it just amplifies what's already going on. Right? So if you have the volume down, the music is playing, but as you turn it up, it gets louder. It's just amplifying what's already there. If we are running after things in this life as the ultimate good, suffering will only amplify that as we run from the Lord after the things we truly desire. But if we're running to the word of life embodied, to the king who conquers evil and death and darkness and loves us, if we're running to him, Suffering can serve to amplify running deeper and more diligently to him. And yes, God can use that for our good as much as it might hurt. And you might think, how in the world? How in the world can you stand up there and say that God can use suffering for my good? You don't know what's going on in my life. I would say I don't. And I'm not trying to pretend that I do. I'm 31 years old, I think. I forget my age all the time. I've lived a blink of a lifespan. But in the same way that as a parent, we put our kids through things that are good for them that hurt them. Like when we give them a shot at the doctor's office and they're too young to understand what we're saying, this is for your good, it's going to be quick, I know it's going to hurt, but I love you. They don't understand that. They just look at us feeling betrayed. How could you do this to me? Because there's a greater good. That's the love of our God who sees a greater good when we're not able to. Look to Jesus. Look to the word of life embodied as your greatest good. This is a quote from an author and apologist named Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote a book called Confronting Christianity. It was the book of the year from Christianity Today last year, and this is what it says in her chapter on suffering. 
If, as Jesus claims, the goal of our existence is relationship with him, that's the goal of all of our life, then finding him in our suffering is the point. It's not the removal of the pain. It's not the, rec- the fixing of the problem. It's finding him. Because in him alone is life undying. And that's what our hearts yearn for and cry out for. Next, as we make our way through the text, we see that the word of life shares our sorrows and he passionately stands against death, the enemy. He is the sorrow-sharing sufferer and he does something about evil. That's what we're going to see in verses 32 through 38. And so if you would pick it up with me. Jesus, um, after having his conversation with Martha, now turns to have this conversation with the other sister, Mary. And there's people around, so this is what happens. When Martha came, or I'm sorry, Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Literally the exact same thing that her sister said. I think they were sisters. They talked about this beforehand. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was angry in his spirit, and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, angry again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. In these verses, we see that Jesus shares in mourning Lazarus' friend, and he angrily stands against death, the enemy. Now, I want you to think of something with me. Uh, I'll speak for myself, and I'll see if you can relate to this. As a modern person, um, I am constantly being reminded of the suffering, darkness, and the pain in this world. Right? There's a 24-hour news cycle Um, I constantly get news updates on this thing, and then Amber Alerts. Um, Scrolling through Facebook and social media and seeing headline after headline after headline, and then all the responses to the things going on in this world, constantly aware of suffering in this world. In fact, I would say that we are, in terms of generationals, generations through history, we are the most aware of human suffering at any given moment than any other human generation has been before. And I feel crushed under the weight of that to the point of paralysis. It is too much for any single person to handle. Now think about this. If you feel that, if you can relate to that, Jesus The word of life embodied is fully God. And he is eternally aware of all human suffering, not just at any given moment, but throughout history, and he's aware of it constantly. Can you imagine the burden that would be? Can you imagine the weight of that awareness? And yet notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't step into the scene of mourning and weeping and say, hey guys, I'm going to heal him. It's okay. 
He doesn't throw theological platitudes at them. He weeps. Because he's not just fully God, he's also fully man. And as the one who identifies with us fully, he shares our sorrows. This is Rebecca McLaughlin again. She says, But Jesus is no remote deity watching suffering from a safe distance. He's the God who inhabits our suffering. He weeps with us as we weep. But he doesn't just mourn and he doesn't just weep. He faces off against the enemy. So in verse 32, your translation, or I'm sorry, uh, verse 33, your translation might say he was deeply moved in his spirit or it might say something like he groaned in himself. I think the better translation there is he was angry in his spirit. He was ticked. Jesus sees the tomb of his friend, and he's ticked. We're told that twice, 32 and 38. So why? Why would Jesus be angry at death? Isn't death the just natural course of life? All humans die. We're used to it. It's sure it's sad whenever a younger person dies, and we're going to miss the older people, but everybody dies. It's natural, right? No. No. It's not natural. Death occurs in a world broken and corrupted by sin. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, God created this beautiful, full, abundant world just completely filled with his life to dwell in with humans. And it was by human rebellion against the Creator King, cutting themselves off from the author of life, sin therefore brings death into the cosmos. Sin brought forth death. Death is not natural. It is the enemy of God. It is the enemy of God's good creation. And so when Jesus steps up to the tomb, he doesn't just see another dead human. He doesn't just see a friend to miss. He sees the corrupt fruit of the work of Satan. He sees the ultimate result of human sin. He sees the enemy with its claws in his friend laughing at him, and he's ticked. This is what John Calvin says in his comments on this passage. Christ does not approach the grave as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we shouldn't wonder why he is angry, for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. In the story of Lazarus, we are given a preview of the whole purpose Christ came to reverse the curse of Genesis 3, to restore God's good world to the life God always intended for it. It must come from him, and he is here face to face with his enemy. What does this have to say to us? Take comfort. Take comfort from the sorrow-sharing Savior and learn to imitate him in his passionate stand against evil. There's too much to be said very specifically here, I think just in sum, I would encourage each and every one of us to consider the fruitless ways that we often respond to suffering in our own life or the suffering of others. Some of us run to frustration and anger and looking for the people who agree with us to party up with and to vent to. Some of us feel overwhelmed by anxiety, sadness, 
and we feel all we can do is throw in the towel. Others of us just get paralyzed and we want to turn that thing off and just step back and walk away, act like it's not happening. These are fruitless ways that we respond to suffering. Our first place to go is to the feet of the word of life embodied and to cry out to him with tears and ask him, show your glory. Show your glory in this. Bring life in the midst of death. And if we go anywhere before we do that, as we're confronted with pain and suffering, we have missed the first step. What does it look like to take a passionate stand against evil? Man, if each and every one of us just committed to praying that, what would God do? He is the gracious, good God who hates evil more than all of us combined. He has filled us with the spirit of truth. He will answer those prayers. Let's pray them diligently. What does it look like, Lord, for me to take a stand against evil? How ought I love you and love my neighbor above all else in this life? And then finally, when we make our way through this text, the word of life commands life out of death. Take a look at verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the glory of God. The same power that called creation out of dark nothingness is here in the mouth of the word of life, calling his dead friend out of the darkness of the tomb. This is the glory of God on display, rolling back the curse of Genesis 3 and giving us a preview of what he himself will do. The raising of Lazarus finishes the first half of the book of John and then points forward to the conclusion, the climactic conclusion, whenever Jesus, who willingly laid down his life to defeat the enemy, then, like a boss, takes it up and says, you can't kill me now, sucker. <laughs> um, this is the resurrection power. This is the glory of God put on display. What would this have to do with us? Well, it should comfort us because it shows us the same hope that we have. When we see Christ resurrected, we're getting a glimpse of what we look forward to. Our brother who's raised and is a new creation human in fullness, we look forward to sharing in his glory and being raised as well. But it also reminds us to proclaim the life-giving gospel to a world dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says that all humans naturally are at odds with God. They are his enemies. They are dead in sin, and they are enslaved to evil. But God, being rich in mercy, raises believers up with Christ and gives them life. By grace, we are saved through faith, and this is a gift. If you have come to faith in King Jesus, the greatest miracle that God would work in your life has already been accomplished. It's already been accomplished. He has displayed his might to bring you out of death and to give you life. We not only rejoice in that and savor that, but we take up our role to speak the same word of the gospel. Because as we speak the gospel, the good news of the rescuing king as we speak the gospel, a world that is dead in sin 
here's a voice that they'd forgotten about. The voice of the one who made them and who beckoned them out of death into life. It's not because we have great methods. It's not because we know how to articulate biblical truth so perfectly. It's because we are mouthpieces of the authoritative King Jesus who speaks life out of death. That's why we proclaim with boldness, with joy, and with expectation. May we be faithful in the days that God gives us. So in closing, next steps. As we consider being sent from here, what are our next steps practically as we look at this next week? I think very obviously, this is something to give thanks for. Jesus' love and power We're being reminded so clearly of it in this text. How does it encourage you uniquely where you're at? These are dark times. How does the power and love of Jesus uniquely encourage you right now? And then as you look through the bulletin, as you look at those four points as we walk through this text, those applications, which of those four applications do you most need to put into action? Not the easy one. Not the one that you might say, well, I'd have to do the least work for that. The one you most need to put into action and commit to obeying God in that regard this week. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are the God of glory and you reveal your glory as you bring life out of death. We bless your name. We thank you for those of us who have received that life through faith in Christ, and we pray, oh God, for the broken world around us that you would wreck shop on evil, that you would give us the joy of participating in your restorative, redeeming work by heralding the good news of King Jesus and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We ask these things in his name. Amen.